HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Buy Right Market, a mission district institution since 1940. For more information, visit www.buyrightmarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. When you think of Russian cuisine, what do you think about? Aside from vodka, that is. Hold that thought, and we're going to find out all about it today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Russian cuisine. So what do you think of when you think of Russian cuisine? I know a lot of people think, of course, of vodka, right? Well, that's, that's certainly something that is uh, to, good to think about. Um, but there are also a lot of myths associated with what Russian cuisine is. A lot of people just think it's meat and potatoes or that it's heavy or... Or we think about black bread, that all they eat is black bread. Well, today we are going to find out all of the history, the finer points of Russian cuisine, and delve into some of the delectable dishes. My guest today is Dara Goldstein. And Dara is the author of four cookbooks, A Taste of Russia. So today we're not A Taste of the Past. We are A Taste of Russia, A Taste of Russia, The Georgian Feast, and um, an a couple of others on on vegetables and the boot camp, uh, the baking boot camp at the CIA. She is the founder and former editor in chief of the quarterly magazine that many of you may know, Gastronomica, the Journal of Food and Culture. She's the food editor of Russian Life, and Dara is a professor of Russian at Williams College and is widely considered to be a leading authority on Russian cooking and culinary arts. I am so pleased to have you here today, Dara. I'm thrilled to be here today, especially on such a day that feels like I'm in Russia. <laughs> we, yes, we are um, experiencing a bit of a winter blast, and uh, we have all our fuzzy hats and coats on. It's good. It is very it's good. It's appropriate. Well, tell me, you know, I've heard that... Um, that a lot of the Russian cuisine that we know dates back as far as the 10th century. But 
there are all these myths surrounding what Russian cuisine is, and I know that you can dispel these myths for everybody. And uh, tell me, tell me, what what are some of the basic elements of Russian cuisine? Russian cuisine is a very hearty cuisine. As you can imagine, it's a cold climate, and people want to eat hearty foods. But it's very much whole food-based, grain-based, root vegetable, uh, and there is a great desire for soups. It has a beautiful repertoire of soups and especially pies. I think Mm. Russian cuisine is most extraordinary for the variety of pies that they have created over the centuries. And both savory and sweet, right? They love things wrapped in dough. Yes, it's a good way to use up leftovers, but also to make things that are very good for new celebrations. Mm -hmm. And the other distinguishing characteristic would be this absolute love for the sour taste. The peasants in the 19th century felt very strongly that if they didn't have sour, they somehow weren't going to be healthy. Mm, So they wanted sour rye bread, they wanted their pickles, they wanted sour cream, even if they weren't really eating much else. And I think what they didn't know scientifically was that the lactic acid and how important this is for uh, keeping energetic and keeping healthy. But their bodies were telling them, so yes. it was just something innate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, how how different uh, do you feel the cuisine of, aside from the, the modern influences, which we see all over the world, but um, how different has the cuisine evolved much? Is it very different from what it was uh, let's say, you know, a century ago. It's very different. And that great change took place in the 18th century when Peter the Great took the throne mm. because he wanted to take what he felt was a very backward country and bring it to the West. So he created the city of St. Petersburg and he started bringing in Western influences. And over the course of the 18th century, it changed from being a very grain and vegetable and forage-based cuisine, the kinds of things that we aspire to today, of yes. course, <laughs> to having first a lot of Germanic influence and then French influence. And by the end of the 18th century, uh, Russian cuisine among the upper classes, which was only maybe 5% of the population, if that, was uh, pretty much entirely Frenchified, but they still loved their basic Russian foods like blini, which are the buckwheat pancakes. Mm-hmm and kasha, the buckwheat groats, and foods like that that they never want to give up, and they somehow worked into the the more Europeanized repertoire. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. Their their importance and, re- and reliance on <coughs> grains and whole grains has never gone away. That's, no. Yeah, that's and the other important influence came from the East and not the West. Uh, there was a Mongol invasion in the 13th mm. century, And with that came all of these wonderful noodles and dumplings and uh, rice dishes. And as Russia expanded its empire into Central Asia, those influences, and to the south in the Caucasus, those influences became more predominant too. Well, when I ask the question uh, for the listeners, what do they think of and what, what I think of, um, of course, I've read your book, so and, I've <laughs> and and traveled there, but that was you know a long time, decades ago. Um, is I think of the whole grains, the 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 soups, the porridges, the dark breads. I do think of uh, the sour, a lot of the yogurts and sour creams, and and 
and dump and you said now then the influence of dumplings. I think of all the the dumplings, the the dough wrapped you know, things with wonderful fillings. That you said good way to use up leftovers. But mm-hmm. so those influences. Well, how how different is the food of that five percent today? Like the food of the elite and the common man. I mean, there's just no comparison. The new Russia is so fascinating. I'm about to go back in a few weeks and very much looking forward to it. But uh, the capital cities of, of Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh, you would be hard put to recognize them if you were, had, you were in the Soviet Union in the 1960s. There are many foreign chefs working there, uh, extraordinary restaurants. That Free, freestanding restaurants, I mean, because there, oh, there were no freestanding restaurants. At the no. Time. Now, with perestroika, we have you know, individual businesses. And oh, no, these are... Uh, some of the most wonderful restaurants I've eaten at anywhere in the world mm. with very exquisite food, all different kinds of cuisines. But uh, lately, I'd say within the past few years, there's also been this urge to return to that which is essentially Russian. In the first years after the Soviet Union collapsed, everyone was kind of desperate for the West to come in because it had been closed off for so long. And now they're starting to understand what their own riches are. And there is actually a small cottage industry uh, beginning and people are making their own jams as they always did just for survival. But now they're starting to sell them and focusing on the Russian land again. So it's a very interesting moment in time. Well, they're very much in vogue since we're yes. all going back to whole grains and, and artisanal products. And, and Yeah, the difference is that it was a survival method during the Soviet years. And now it's something, for some people it still is survival, but for others it has become something chic. Uh, I was the other thought that I had about what to me is you know Russian for a lot of you mentioned root vegetables and mushrooms. Oh yes, things from the woods, right? Oh, that just makes me sigh. You know, (laughs) it's funny. I adore mushrooms when I'm in Russia, and I have some ambivalence towards them often when I'm in the United States. It's something about uh, tromping through the woods, finding them that very dusky smell that you get Mm. uh, when you find them under the damp leaves. That's it's interesting being a, you know, basing a, a lot of that on their foraging, the foraging uh, notion of their cuisine, which is a great thing to bring back and not to give up. Um, you were first there in the seventies, the very early seventies, very early seventies. So I uh, having been there just a few years prior to that, and I, I want to hear from you. You mentioned in your book a lot about your your um, experience with what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. Now, this book that you is, I failed to mention, this book um, that I'm referring to is A Taste of Russia, which is, you first published 30 years ago. 1983. Wow, yeah, so this is a celebration. It's a 30th anniversary, and this is a third edition of the book. And it's, you say, it's a cookbook of Russian hospitality. Tell me a little bit about that, because the book was originally published under another title. Yes, it was called A La Russe, which... Uh, Seemed too esoteric, I guess, for the American audience. And in the second edition, I was advised to change it to the very basic taste of Russia that expressed something quite essential. (laughs) Um, Hospitality. Hospitality goes to the core of who the Russians are. Uh, The word in Russian comes from two words, chleb, which means bread, and sol, which means salt. So bread is... Uh, a very staple item without which it's the staff of life. 
Salt was a luxury, very expensive, until the Russians uh, conquered Siberia and the mines there in the 16th century. They didn't know how to evaporate salt. They didn't have a source of salt, so it was extraordinarily expensive. So traditionally, uh, if there's a housewarming or some kind of celebratory occasion, you would bring a huge loaf of bread, a special round loaf, and there would be a small indentation in the top where you could put a little bowl of salt. And you dip the bread in the salt, and that is hospitality. I heard, was that also not given to uh, couples when they were first married? They were given yes, it? and when czars were crowned, mm. um, it is very much part of any formal ritual occasion. And uh, even more than just the um, materiality of it, it goes back to this idea in Russian culture that a guest is a gift from God, and therefore the guest is to be treated with the best that one has, and a guest is to be welcomed. And so Russians really love to regale guests, and in the darkest days of Soviet times, a guest truly was an occasion. And even when there wasn't any food to speak of to be seen in the shops uh, and in the government stores, the Russians had their own little uh, summer gardens outside the city or small plots within the city limits. They had wonderful networks of friends. It was a barter economy. And they always managed to find food to put on incredible feasts. I mean, one of the most beautiful meals I ever had was at the uh, communal apartment of one of Moscow's most renowned cardiologists. Uh, he was actually a, a cardiac surgeon. And uh, he lived in a very tiny room. And I went to visit him, and he had pickled his own mushrooms he had some potatoes that he fried in lots of butter, which really impressed me for a cardiologist, <laughs> and vodka that he had flavored himself. And it was an amazing feast Wow! at wow. this tiny wooden table. So even in a time when there wasn't plenty, they, they managed to find it. Well, of course, there was also a lot of, um, as you said, a network of friends. Uh, call it black market, if you will. But, I mean, they did. There were ways for people to... Find it because we would always, of course, read reports of the bread lines and people waiting and waiting to go to a store mm -hmm. and get there and there'd be nothing there. Well, that existed, but uh, usually not for bread, at least not um, in the post-war period. Uh, bread was staple. and Meat. Well, meat was hard. Meat find. was very yeah. hard to find. Well, you could go to the market. You just had to pay a lot of money for it. So it's not that things like meat weren't available uh, it was more expensive than most people could afford. The more difficult things were fruits, mm -hmm. citrus fruits, oranges, bananas, things like that. Yeah. Of course, now what saddens me is going to the new Russia, and it's hard to find that essential Russian black bread with a wonderful sour flavor. You're more likely to find a softer French-style baguette or Western loaf. You have to go into a grandmother's home <laughs> exactly. and, and get it <laughs> right from the oven, right? Or great-grandmother would have to be, I think, at that time. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about the um, procurement and also some of the fantastic dishes that are found on the Russian table when we come back after a short break. You're listening to the Elbow Room Sessions 
by Bohemia on the Heritage Radio Network dot O-R-G. We'd like to send a special thank you to our latest business member, Byright Market in San Francisco. Byright is a grocery store that features organic and locally produced goods. They build meaningful relationships with each of their extended family. The food they make and sell connects staff, guests, producers, and the environment. In this way, Byright creates community through food. For more information, visit www.buyrightmarket.com. To learn more about becoming a business member, email us, info at heritageradionetwork.org. We all know what a foodie is, but what's foodiness? Foodiness is turning us into those chubby, slushy, slurping, lounge chair-bound morons in Wally, plugged in, pumped full of sugar, and brain dead. Chef Erica Wides is here to fight against foodiness. You have to keep drinking the Let's Get Real Kool-Aid for it to start to work. Let's Get Real. Rediscover real food every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hi, we are back on A Taste of Russia, (laughs) on A Taste of the Past, with Dara Goldstein. And Dara, we were talking before the break about... Um, the importance of grains and, and porridges that were made and, and, of course, the breads and how important bread was. I had read somewhere um, in research that there was an old saying, and I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, called porridge is our mother and bread is our father I, as, as being important oh, aspects of, well, of the Russian cuisine. In Russia, it's more that, um, let me see. Quick translation in her head here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to switch gears. <laughs> It's uh, cabbage soup and kasha. That is our fare. Uh-huh. So it's actually the cabbage soup and the buckwheat porridge. That I, I mean, bread goes without saying. Right. But right. then beyond that, it's those two. Yeah, cabbage. We didn't mention cabbage. Yes, cabbage no. is being so important, right? Mm-hmm. Both both fresh and soured. Yes, and I think that in this country, people tend to think of borscht when you think of Russian cuisine. Absolutely. And borscht is actually a Ukrainian dish. It's deeply, deeply Ukrainian. There are something like 100 different varieties depending on which region you travel to. The quintessential Russian soup is the cabbage soup. And there's the regular cabbage soup that um, is made with sauerkraut. And then there's something called lazy cabbage soup that you can do with the fresh cabbage Mm -hmm. uh, because you don't have to go the trouble of fermenting the cabbage into sauerkraut first. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about fermentation um, and beverages. Now, there is something that's so important in the Russian cuisine, kvass. Can you tell us what that is? Yes, it's like a small beer. And basically, it can be made from any number of things, but the most common type is made from brown bread. Uh, Don't try to make it with brown bread that has any additives or preservatives in it, because obviously it won't uh, be a very good starting place for you. But if you uh, let that, uh, if you toast that, and then add some water, a little bit of honey, some raisins. You can make a, a fermented very lightly. It's only about uh, 3 to 4% alcohol. It is sparkling, so it has a, a very slight toasted flavor to it. Mm. 
Um, not a tinge a, of sweetness from with the grapes, a tinge right? of sweetness. It's very lovely. Is it a dark beer or a light beer? Um, how does it um, when it pours out? It, um, does it take on the color of the dark bread? Yes, it does. Oh, uh, it's sort of like a deep amber color, I would say. Mm-hmm. And one of the bright spots on the Soviet horizon <laughs> was on the street. You would have tanker trucks, like we have. We see tanker trucks with gasoline or milk in them, uh, if you can imagine imagine them half that size, painted bright yellow with stenciled four letters on them, kvas, in Russian. And people would line up, and uh, it would be poured right from this tanker Ooh. truck. Well, great thing to do on a hot day. Huh? Yeah. yeah, or on a cold or day. On a cold day. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Get a little of that in you. Um, well, the word kvass you mentioned in your book means actually to ferment, right? Yeah, or, or to leaven. So it, uh-huh. it all comes from the work of the alcohol. Well, I noticed in that so many of the recipes um, for soups or stews, um, the, one of the ingredients is always that souring, that, that well, I call it the souring agent, but... Um, a fermented broth, a mm-hmm. kvass of some type. Um, one of my favorite dishes is a summer soup that uses kvass. So you just uh, chop up a lot of cucumbers, radishes, uh, some tomatoes, a lot of dill, and whatever you have from the garden, and then you pour some very fresh kvass over it, and you have this beautiful light summer soup. Hmm. Or you could use kefir, if you don't have kvass, and mm-hmm. that is a variation on that. And it's also made from, you You have recipes for variations on kvass, from cranberries, from beets. Yes. From, the, I didn't realize you, the beets, and you said the beets ferment very quickly. Oh, they uh, they bubble over, and if you're making them in your own kitchen, you want to make sure that you put something down on the floor first so that you don't have bright red streaks that mm. then stain, Yeah, uh, as I discovered the hard way. <laughs> Sounded like it came from experience. Um, what? Tell me. In you, you wrote a lot about um, some of the old meals and and the feel. I guess it was probably more the feeling of home, but the stove and how important the stove was. Yes, the Russian stove. It's almost unthinkable to consider Russian cuisine without it. Uh, it's a big masonry stove that uh, has a huge. It's like a pizza oven, except that the opening is considerably larger and the space inside is large enough that in some areas of Russia, uh, when the stove was cleaned out, it was a very sterile environment, obviously, because fire had been lit in it. Uh, Some women would actually go in there to give birth. Oh, my goodness. So some of these were very large. Hmm. Uh, There were a lot of ritual uses for the stove because you put, uh, bread dough in and it came out as bread which gave life if you had a sick child you would sort of put the child very quickly in and out three times just symbolically into the opening of the stove to uh, ensure the child's health hmm. one thing that distinguishes Russian cuisine has to do with the stove's falling temperature so You put uh, pies and breads in when it's very hot, when it's first been fired up. And then as the temperature continues to fall, you can put in stews or porridges. You can, uh, there are wonderful uh, yogurt-like preparations that you can put in overnight when the stove is barely hot at all. Mm -hmm. And you'll have that ready in the morning. Right. So it's marvelous. And what's been very sad, I keep talking about the sadness of the post-Soviet period. I don't mean to say that everything was wonderful then. 
But uh, in these Russian country houses known as dachas that had amazing stoves that have stood over centuries, a lot of those have been torn out because they took up uh, a quarter to a third of the space of the cottage right. to put in 36-inch big-screen TVs. <laughs> oh, so <no. laughs> that's how life changes. Well, and, and of course it was used as heat too, right? Yes, and there was the priv- privilege so. of being able to sit on the, the, the hearth. Or Yes, there's a ledge on top where old people or uh, the infirm could lie and be very toasty. And you could dry mushrooms or herbs there because uh, there are all kinds of niches mm-hmm. in the stove itself. Just a, a wonderful thing. I gave a talk at MIT once. This was kind of a wonderful learning experience for me. It was for one of their engineering groups, but they're working on culinary projects. And I thought, well, talk about the Russian stove and how amazing it is. And it's the center of the home and it's falling temperatures and everyone's madly taking notes. And I thought, oh, these MIT students really love what I'm talking about. And at the end, they wanted to present to me how much more efficient that stove could be if it were designed differently. (laughs) And I said, but that's not the point. You know, it's the heart of the home. It's called the mother. Uh, It's not meant to be the most efficient. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Um, um, You had reminded me of something when you were were saying that. Oh, I know. And the book was originally titled A La Russe. And what we um, then didn't immediately go to is that you said that, yes, there was all this French influence in the food uh, at the um, turn of the 13th, 14th century. No, no, it was much later. later. It was late. 18th century. 18th century. Well, and then, of course, um, what we call the the way that we eat today, the way the courses come is service à la russe, right? Yes. And that all stemmed from the same period? Um, that had been practiced earlier in Russia, but it was introduced to France in the first decades of the 19th century. I think Antonin Karim was responsible for doing some of that. Maybe. No, he was horrified. He was, he was so <laughs> resistant. It's not clear who introduced it. Um, it, it was someone from the Russian uh, ministry who was there serving in France. But basically, the French styles to have all the dishes, the classical French service had all the dishes on the table at once, and you saw everything you were getting in each course. The Russian style, the food was displayed, uh, the roast swan or yes. heron or whatever, or sturgeon. Feathers and all. <laughs> yes, was paraded around the table, but then taken back to the kitchen and sliced. And each guest was given an individually portioned plate. And this was deemed uh, barbaric in French circles. Hmm. Interesting. But it really is the way we eat now. And uh, the four different courses instead of, you know, three to nine courses, which was part of the classical French meal. Right. Um, Now, you just brought up four courses. Let's talk about that last course, sweets. Oh, yes. Well, interestingly, uh, the basis for the classical Russian sweets is honey. Uh, Honey and Russians are one. The word for bear in Russian, uh, the Russians were very afraid of those primeval forests that (laughs) surrounded them in the northern part of the country. And they're afraid to call the bear by its name, as though, you know, it would invoke the bear's wrath. And it was always, the word is midvids, which is honey eater. 
so uh, it was superstition surrounding it, but there were millions of wild hives. And the Russians still have beautiful, beautiful honey. And their earliest jams were made with honey. Obviously, sugar had to be imported, and it wasn't mm -hmm. until the sugar beet industry arose in the 19th century that uh, beet sugar became more prevalent. But the Russians have a very sweet tooth. Oh, interesting. And uh, what about pastries and, and, and uh, baking? Yeah, the pastries tend to be uh, very similar to the Germanic tradition uh, with that kind of um, kuchen dough mm -hmm. or the French pastries. Russians really love Napoleons, and they have the uh, puff pastry with a lot of cream. One of the very quintessential Russian sweets is called pastilla, which is like a, a fruit foam. I would say that the most standard Russian desserts have to do with fruits, oh, apples in yeah. particular. Okay, so let's, let's recreate um, service at the table and a traditional meal, um, n not today's modern influences, because we know there are all kinds of, they're probably sushi and all kinds of other wonderful things. Oh, sushi fish. everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> There's because, sushi everywhere. And, well, and fish, they, they were always reliant upon fish. They had a lot of fish in their diet, right? They did, but until Peter the Great issued an order uh, during his reign, most Russians were afraid to eat ocean fish. They only ate lake fish and river fish. Hmm. And when he opened up uh, Russia to the White Sea and Ar Archangel in the north, he uh, ordered people to eat from the sea because the people in the far north, the Russians referred to as cod eaters very pejoratively. Mm, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So uh, even today, a classic Russian meal you cannot uh, consider without the first course, which is the zakuska. Zakuska. Okay. Yeah. It means little bites. Um, it's a little bit like a smorgasbord, but it's always the first course. And uh, in the 19th century, or in a very formal meal, it would be served in another room. But now it, it's just served at the table. And it's uh, meant to stimulate the appetite. So you have salty foods, pickled foods, things that will also make you enjoy your vodka. Mm -hmm. uh, and go well <laughs> with vodka. So that's where the caviar would come in, the pickled herring, uh, different sorts of uh, cured meats and fishes and cheese. Interesting. So, and then... Um, and then comes... And then comes soup. What, the soup course, of course. Uh, if it's midday, you don't have soup in the evening. And then comes the main course, which would be meat and potatoes or grain and vegetable, and then dessert. So not terribly unlike what we would expect and what, what's on our tables. Our, what, what's on our tables basically came from, from that. Service Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you um, have quite a connection, as I read in some of your notes, uh, with, with food in Russia and having that whole experience of, of um, appreciation in that your great-grandfather was a butcher, was he not? Yes, he was. I never knew him. I never knew my grandfather either. Yeah. So this is just family lore. Uh -huh. But uh, my now I'm getting all the generations mixed up. But my great great uncle uh, grew up in the same shtetl with Chagall, and they played in this butcher shop uh -huh. that had a, a great influence on them 
And Chagall, of course, grew up and painted these amazing canvases with chickens and cows and everything in them. And my great-grandfather grew up and became a butcher. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so that's, there is a lot of history there. And that was in Belarus? That was in... Outside oh. of Vitebsk in what is now Belarus. Belarus. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, you certainly have a lot of, of knowledge of Russian history and Russian art, and it seems to make a lot of sense that, uh, that you would gravitate towards Russian food, too, because it is so much part of the culture, right? It's really the food that allowed me to enter into the culture. Mm. And when I was uh, still in graduate school, I spent a year, a long time ago, 1978-79, an academic year working for the State Department in a program that was a cultural exchange. If you remember the kitchen debates between Nixon yes. and Khrushchev yes. back in 1957, these exhibits that the United States had touring the Soviet Union were an outgrowth of that. And the one that I worked on was, interestingly enough, Agriculture USA. Hmm. And it was very political because the agriculture uh, in 1978 was failing. In the Soviet Union, they were having to import grain from the United States. There wasn't enough food in the stores. And here we came with early videos of American supermarkets. And it was pretty offensive but um, interesting for a young graduate student. But the only thing that allowed me to survive that year was getting to know Russians, being brought into their homes because they wanted to show me what they had, teach me about their food and their traditions. And it was that element of hospitality and writing this book that sort of salvaged the experience for right. me. Well, that and it's wonderful. I was really drawn to the to the the hospitality in the title because as people other people who didn't have your experience of being invited into the home know that so much when you go so much is for show so much is what well it what was presented to you that they wanted you to see but this whole exploration of hospitality and how important that is to to someone when they have you in their home is so important and such a, a wonderful window into their culture. I really thank you so much for spending your time and, and sharing your experiences. And I thank, you f I, I thank you for having written a book that is, as many people have said, one of the best explorations into Russian cuisine translated into English, you know, that, written in, in English that we have. And... Um, and, and I look forward to speaking more to you. And I will tell our listeners that you have a new project coming up. Uh, Dara is going to be the editor for the Oxford Companion to Sweets. And we look forward to hearing more about that in the future. And again, you've been listening to A Taste of the Past with Dara Goldstein, author of A Taste of Russia. And I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 